Let's now turn to the book of First Chronicles, and we'll begin reading from the 13th chapter at verse 5, and we'll read to the end of this chapter, and then we'll skip down to the beginning of chapter 15. We're going to skip 14 and go right to chapter 15 and read the first 15 verses from there. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor and Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kirjath Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? And skipping down to chapter 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites, of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, and one hundred and twenty of his brethren, of the sons of Merari, Asiah the chief, and two hundred and twenty of his brethren, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, and one hundred and thirty of his brethren, of the sons of Eliphan, Elizaphan, Shemaiah the chief, and two hundred of his brethren, of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and eighty of his brethren, of the sons of Aziel, Aminadab, the chief, and one hundred and twelve of his brethren. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, uh, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Let's also turn in our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 35. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. May we then not make any image at all? 
God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we considered the first uh, commandment concerning who we are to worship. And of course, that is uh, the Lord God alone. We are to have no other uh, gods besides him. Now, the second commandment, has to do with the matter of how we are to worship God. And uh, it's important for us to appreciate that when Israel made the golden calf, their intention was to worship the Lord who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, uh, but they went about it according to their own ideas, and they formed an idol to represent the Lord, and they were violating uh, the second commandment specifically. Now, these commandments are so closely related that the violation of the one almost invariably involves the violation of the other in some manner. But yet they are to be distinguished. And I think it's a helpful way to distinguish them by recognize the difference, recognizing the difference between uh, the matter of who we are to worship and how we are to worship him. When you think about it, it says something very profound about God's relationship to mankind, that an entire commandment is devoted to this issue of how to worship God. And it's a commandment that is uh, given in the first uh, table of the law pertaining to how we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a commandment that comes before you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you, you shall not steal. And one out of ten is devoted to this matter of how we are to worship the Lord. And that's quite striking in view of the, the reality of the way such things are viewed in the world we live in. Our world largely judges the, the topic uh, of how to worship as simply a matter of personal preference or a matter of tradition as something that doesn't really even involve questions of right or wrong at all. They would uh, say that sincerity is all that matters. Sincerity and choice. You decide. And sadly, this attitude is found even among professing Christians. You may have heard such things as, you have no right to judge how other people worship. And that seems to involve the assumption that God himself doesn't make any judgments about how people worship, as if it's totally indifferent to the Lord, how people worship him. Well, the Bible and our scripture reading for this evening tells us something else, doesn't it? Because it does involve a case of judgment. In the case of judgment, with a, a very clear explanation of why, we hear it in verse 15, in uh, verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13, 13, because you did not do it the first time, the Lord broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. We did not seek God's will. We didn't pay attention to what God wants in this matter. And that's the explanation for this exhibition of God's wrath and judgment. 
Actually, this verse uh, goes right to the the heart of what the second commandment is all about. And that is that God commands us to worship him as he told us to. We are to consult him, his word, as to the what and the how of worship. And that means we must reject the rationale, should be either in your outline, the rationale, that is the reasons, the way of thinking that is often given for using images in worship. The second commandment is negative. It involves uh, you shall not, as with eight out of the ten commandments. We have two that are positive in uh, in their wording. Remember the Sabbath, honor your father and mother. The others begin with a prohibition, you shall not. And except for the fourth commandment, concerning the Sabbath and the elaboration that's given as to the why, uh, the second commandment is the longest commandment. More words are devoted to this than such commands as you shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery. There's an elaboration of, uh, of, of uh, the fact that the Lord is a jealous God. It matters to him uh, how people worship him. He guards their relationship to him, and that has a lot to do with how they worship him. And the second commandment promises of blessing and mercy to lawkeepers, and also God's judgment against lawbreakers, particularly with respect to this second commandment. It is a perverse and a universal kind of inclination of our human race to corrupt the self-revelation of God by likening the creator to a creature. It's this propensity that people have that is behind this prohibition of the second commandment. It's a commandment that is repeated so often in so many different ways in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, before the the, the second uh, proclamation of the law, We read in verses 15 and 16, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself the card image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And it goes on to uh, prohibit uh, a superstitious uh, reverence and worship for the heavenly bodies. A prohibition, a warning against acting corruptly, specifically in the form of forming images, is repeated in this same chapter in the 25th verse. The Apostle Paul makes an allusion to it in Romans chapter 1, where he speaks of idolatry as changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And then he enumerates the kinds of things that are listed back there in Deuteronomy. And birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. There is this tendency to make images. And making images of God, it lies about him. It involves a kind of self-corruption. 
It involves a, a kind of distortion and corruption of God's being. It is to act corruptly, and it's to speak lies about the Lord. Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, uh, makes that clear as it pronounces a woe. That's the language of, of cursing and judgment. It says, woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? A molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. They cannot speak, and what they communicate by uh, their very existence is a lie. And that's true of every endeavor to portray God by way of images or to use images uh, to worship him. It attempts the impossible. Right? The catechism is clear on that. It says that God cannot be visibly portrayed in any way. He is the infinite, eternal, invisible God. It's impossible to portray him in any way. It's to attempt the impossible, and it only achieves a misrepresentation then of him. It's impossible to pull it off, and it's wrong to try. Images of God are never helpful. Now, that's, an, that's kind of a deliberate understatement, because it's a way of uh, addressing directly the rationale, the reasons that are often given for the use of images that they are helpful. Catechism actually addresses that very directly. It says, should we not uh, permit images as books for the unlearned? People that might not be so educated and they might not be able to read for themselves or they, they might not understand prolonged discourses and teachings, but they can be moved, they can be affected by images. They can be stirred. They can uh, be moved to feelings of devotion and love. See, that's the rationale for the use of images. Think of a crucifix. Hmm? Think of a, 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 an image of Jesus upon the cross. Or think of an elaborated form of that in terms of a, of a sculpture, a life-size sculpture with efforts to portray the agonies of the Savior and the, the sufferings that he endured with the images of blood flowing from his hands and feet. And imagine the argument that looking at such an image, looking at such a picture, moves people to devout feelings about Jesus and what he suffered for them. Or moves them to love him. The same thing with a, with a life-size picture of Jesus perhaps that may adorn the walls of churches or adorn the windows of churches and communicate something of the loving shepherd and the tender savior. Oh, we don't worship these things. Oh no. Try to show a little disrespect for them. Try to say that guy looks like some rock star that I've seen in a, ma a band. What? That's Jesus. No, it's not. It's the product of someone's imagination. 
And it doesn't deserve reverence. And the very idea that because someone fabricated such a picture, such a portrait, such an image, and called it Jesus, and therefore it ought to be revered, and it ought to be used to evoke spiritual feelings, brothers and sisters, that is exactly the kind of uses of images that the second commandment forbids. Because we're not Nestorians. And we do not divide divide and separate the divine and the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no picture, there is no representation of Jesus left for us to communicate the reality of his manhood. So it depends upon the imagination of an artist and it lies about him. doesn't tell the truth of what he looked like. And it's an endeavor to play upon people's feelings and and emotions in a way that's not helpful. Christ is to be clearly portrayed before God's people as crucified by the proclamation of the word. Not by movies or plays or pictures or crucifixes or statutes or any such thing. God didn't ask for that. God isn't honored by that. People are not helped by it spiritually despite whatever feelings they might have about it. We must not be wiser than God. And this applies to all kinds of images. It applies to all kinds of symbols and rituals. It applied to Gideon's ephod. Remember the story of Gideon? He was a great judge. The Lord used him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But he also took the gold and all the implements from their camels and all their ornaments, and he made this golden ephod. And the ephod was some some priestly vestment involving precious stones and was used as a a, a way to inquire of the Lord. There is mystery surrounding it in terms of its actual use and makeup. But it belonged to the work of the priests. But Gideon made a golden ephod and the result of that was spiritual adultery. Israel went to whoring after it. They violated their relationship to the living God who is jealous for his name and for his honor. And his jealousy was provoked by their unfaithfulness, by fabricating holy things for themselves by which to worship God. The the actual bronze serpent that Moses made as the years went by took on a kind of superstitious Value. And the people began to burn incense to it until Hezekiah instituted reform. He says, this is a bronze thing. We destroyed it. When it became an object of worship. Or when it became a help for devotion. Or a means by worship, by means by which to worship the Lord and what he has done. People like to attach spiritual meaning to memorabilia to statutes, to trinkets, to ornaments, ringing bells, lighting candles, burning incense, wearing robes. All these things can be so inseparably associated in the minds of people that they become necessary for worship in their minds. We're talking about what might be called high church liturgy. The things that characterize the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox churches that are marked by such rituals and pageantries and smells and sights and sounds. 
And people may feel that they really can't worship without, it's not worship without these things. What's the modern counterpart to that? In much evangelical churches, it's the music. It's the performances. Often loud music, repetitive music, perhaps moving music. But it's viewed as necessary. It's a must. It's the measure in the minds of so many people of meaningful worship. It's the basis by which many people select a church to attend because they are stirred and moved and aroused by the musical performances. Now, we greatly value our organists. And we value the use that the organ serves to help us in singing. Right? But that's a whole different than elevating music to an element of worship that is necessary, that is important, becomes a focus. It's not only possible, it's almost inevitable that an occupation with these things will replace the spiritual worship that God requires. It's the tendency of the human heart to devise our own ways of worship. Because the things that God has appointed have no appeal to unspiritual minds and hearts. That's a big part of it. And all of Christians have enough remnants of unspirituality to devise ways in order to be moved and affected by worship other than what God has commanded. Whatever people imagine such things are not helpful. We must not try to be wiser than God to devise our own ways of worshiping Him. Reject the rationale for using images of every kind in the worship of God. Secondly, revere the rule for acceptable worship. Answer 96, idolatry is, or rather, that in we, we in no way make an image of God. That's first there. And then secondly, this is the broader principle and application. Nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. That's often called the regulative principle. And that means that the question is not simply, what does God forbid? We need to know that God is positively pleased uh, by what we do in worship, because he told us. And if we don't start there, we go our way. If we go our way, we go astray. Sincerity is not enough. That's what what people say. Oh, uh, if our intentions are good, God accepts us. And thankfully, brothers and sisters, in so many things, that is certainly true. Our worship is never perfect. And with every endeavor to to follow God's will with respect to the details of worship, we don't claim infallibility in these things. And yes, if our intention is to is to follow God's will and His word in worship, with the imperfections of our worship and the mistakes that we might make, God is gracious. And to whom much has been given, much will be required. And as we have more light on such things and a rich heritage and a history of understanding of God's Word, yes, we may be held to a higher standard in observing it. And this is not a means to uh, make judgments about about every Christian because we feel that they uh, don't follow the teachings of Scripture as we believe we must. So yes, there is an important element of truth in here. 
In many ways, that is true, but not as an excuse for carelessness about the rule for worship. Not as an excuse for carelessness about what God wants us to do and what we know He is pleased with and what He will bless. We must consult the Lord for such things and not follow our good intentions. Uzzah was uh, sincere. He had every good intention when he reached out his hand to, to steady the ark. He didn't want it to fall into the mud. He didn't want it to fall off this cart. But he became a lesson to all that God's will must govern our sincerity. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. That proper order is taught in Scripture clearly. In many respects, the ark was to be carried by the Levites through the poles that were stuck through those rings that were fixed to that ark. And it was to be covered. And the priests themselves were not to to look at it or touch it. You can read about some of these regulations in Numbers chapter 4, verses 15 and 20. There's actually the threat of death in the event of touching the ark. Sincerity isn't enough. Feeling uplifted and moved doesn't make it right. In chapter 13, we read, Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. You can imagine that this was a very stirring event. It was a joyful event. David was very happy to have this representation of God's presence brought back to Jerusalem with his people, and that was good, that he greatly valued that. It was good that that meant a lot to the people, no doubt. But they were too thoughtless about how they went about it. So what shall we do? Well, you remember when the ark was in the land of the Philistines and God judged them there? And they sent it back to us. They sent it on a new card. That seemed to work. Let's do that. And so they put the ark on a new card. The Philistines didn't know any better. And they tried to respect uh, uh, the Lord who had judged them for their irreverence the best they could. But Israel should have known better. David should have known better. That was the rule for kings. God required that kings, when they sit upon their throne, they're not just to read the, the, the law, they're to copy it out with their own hands. They're to make their personal copy, to make clear that they know it. David should have given leadership to hear. The, the priests, they should have given leadership to do what God's word required. They were far too careless. They didn't consult the Lord. They came up with their good ideas and were happy about it. And God disrupted this uplifting, moving procession of joy. It's interesting that uh, chapter 15, verse 1, begins with a reference to David building not only houses for himself, but he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Makes you wonder what they were thinking, even about where they were going to put the ark. seems they hadn't given, given much thought to it. 
But maybe David went back and read the law, and he realized that he had no reason to be upset with the Lord, but rather with himself, because they failed to consult the Lord for the proper order. Following the crowd doesn't remove our responsibility. There's no basis to judge Uzzah harshly. There's no reason to conclude that Uzzah was a wicked man or Uzzah was a profane man. Yes, God's anger went out against him. We read that in verse 10. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark. That was one of the more egregious failures in this holy uh, thing. He wasn't supposed to touch it. But Uzzah was one among the crowd. Then in verse 13 of chapter 15, we read, because he says, the Lord broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. It's not about Uzzah. Uzzah was just one of the crowd. The Bible says don't follow a crowd to do evil. We might also say, don't follow a crowd whose leaders don't consult God about the proper order of how he is to be worshipped. Revere the the rule for acceptable worship. I chose that word revere. I know I wanted a word that begins with R, like the other ones, but that's not the real reason now why I prefer revere. Because it says something more than obey, right? There's a way of obeying the rule. Okay, we'll obey the rule. We'll do what we have to, but we sure would rather do something else. Okay, we'll follow the regulations, but we're going to push the limits. We're going to go as far as we can. No, no, revere that rule. Revere the God who tells us how to worship Him with a desire to observe it, with a conviction of heart. We don't simply ask, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with this or that? We ask the question, How do we know that God is really pleased with this and that this really honors him? Believe that God's will is right and believe that it is good and revere it also as the way of God's blessing. Thirdly, receive the riches of God's will for worship. God wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word not by idols that cannot even talk. Positively, God wants to instruct us by his word. What is the most awe-inspiring, edifying thing about gathering in the presence of God for worship? Well, maybe we can answer that question further by uh, asking it this way. What was it for Israel? What was the most awe-inspiring thing about gathering at the foot of Mount Sinai? Well, the answer to that very, very clearly is in the speaking God. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Yes, there were all these surrounding phenomenon that filled the Israelites with awe and dread at the presence of God. There was also the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. 
is the word of God that especially manifested his majesty, his authority, his holiness. He spoke on earth. His voice shook the earth. That's what it says there in verse 25. They did not escape him. They, who, they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on the earth, whose voice then shook the earth. That was the most awesome thing about this gathering. Let me ask, what is surprising about this passage in Hebrews as we read through this uh, description of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai as a description of something that was awesome and frightening and dreadful? Well, the letter to the Hebrews, it appears to make the opposite kind of application than what we might expect. In other words, we might say, oh, that was, that was fearful. That was awesome there. But thankfully, now everything is rainbows and sunbeams and butterflies and soothing music. Is that it? Is that really the, the comparison that's made here? What's the difference? Well, the difference, first of all, brothers and sisters, indeed, is the amazing grace that is revealed in Christ. The grace of Christ through whom we are brought so near to God. This great and majestic and holy God. Nearness to Christ, near, nearness to God through Christ, such that we have admission to heaven. Right? The, that holy of holies, that tabernacle, that temple, that where God dwelt, that was just an earthly representation of God's heavenly dwelling place. And in Christ, we come to the throne of grace, the true heavenly throne, in the company of myriads of angels, in fellowship with the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Yeah, that's the difference. The amazing nearness in which we may come to God with boldness and confidence. Because the speaking God speaks also in the blood of Jesus. Blood, blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood that cried out for judgment and vengeance. But the blood of Jesus Christ cries out for our acceptance and our forgiveness and our access through our mediator into the very presence of God as accepted in the beloved. Oh yes, the, the difference, the contrast is one of amazing grace to us, especially in the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he has done and the tremendous comfort that we have and the fullness of gospel preaching. And then along with that is a heightened kind of solemnity, a heightened kind of urgency that goes right along with this comfort. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape him who who refused, not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. We gather in the presence of the speaking God. 
as we worship him, as he wants us to be taught by the living preaching of his word, which is the word of God, by which the living God addresses us with the wonder of the gospel. Yes, there's a heightened solemnity, a heightened urgency that comes along with this comfort. We might put it this way, brothers and sisters, let the riches of the gospel move you. Be moved as those who are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Relying upon grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So it's, it's as if the the reality of the wondrous grace and the nearness and the comfort that we have in Christ, rather than make us careless and casual and indifferent, it should lead us to worship and adore our God. Yes, with the freedom and the boldness of children, but the reverence of those who are brought into his majestic and glorious presence, accepted in the Beloved, called to bow down and worship him and serve and glorify him with the promise of his acceptance and of his, of his blessing as we worship him in spirit and truth. Amen.